We are resuming our series through 1 Timothy, and we are in the final chapter of Paul's letter to his younger brother in faith. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 to 10. 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 6 to 10. They're gonna, the words will go up on the screen as well. In trusting that you are there, may God bless the reading of his holy word. But godliness... With contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Amen. Amen. Now, we didn't read verses 3 to 5, but in the previous verses, the Apostle Paul critiques the false teachers who have been plaguing Timothy's church in Ephesus. And in those verses, Paul notes that there are three things that these false teachers are guilty of. First, they are guilty of false doctrine, Second, they're guilty of falsely dividing the church. And thirdly, he says these false teachers have been serving and doing religion with false motives, that their hearts are false. Now, it's hard to kind of like pierce into somebody's heart and know their motive, right? I mean, it's, and, and you and I, if, if somebody's trying to get to our heart and our motives, that's very veiled and it's very you know, hard to see, hard to understand. But for Paul and these false teachers, it is clear. And he tells us why these false teachers have false motives and false hearts. Because in verse 5 at the end, he says, they were using religion as a means to financial gain. Okay? That these false teachers are using the church. They're using their quote-unquote ministry. They're using their leverage and their gifts for financial gain. The actual phrasing that Paul uses is, they imagine godliness as a means of gain. And when Paul uses the word gain, he's talking about financial gain, right? It's all about the money there. Now, church, today's sermon is about money and material possessions. And I am well aware that to talk about money in the church, it is very sensitive. It's borderline, borderline dangerous at times. Most pastors do not like preaching on money. And most people don't like hearing about it, right? You guys would rather hear about like worship and the kingdom of God, and the glory of God, and prayer, and community, and all of these kind of more kind of Christian life things. But if suddenly the pastor's like, we're going to talk about money, you're just like, oh my gosh, here we go. Here comes the guilt trip. Here comes the rhetoric. Here comes the burden. Here comes the asking. Here comes the, the offering plate, right? Now, the basic reason, I think there are two reasons why we struggle Pastors struggle with preaching and church members struggle with hearing messages on money. First, it's a topic that's close to our hearts. It is a touchy subject because you all know how precious money is to you. And whether it's your parents or your spouse or your pastor telling you how to spend your money, we don't like that, right? We like our independence. We don't like being told how to spend our money, But the second reason, we're going to talk more about that today, but the second reason why people don't like hearing about money in the church is because too many have seen religion being used as a means for financial gain. We've just been burned. 
Okay? We've seen it. We've seen money be abused in the church. When a prosperity preacher in Atlanta uses church money to buy a $65 million private jet, how does it make you feel? You're like, oh, shake my head, right? It's disgusting, right? It's disgusting. I uh, read an article online, and it was really cool, um, uh, that called the Sunday offering time as the Sunday morning stick-up, right? Because it's at, at that time when, when these prosperity preachers, they come at you with all of the rhetoric, with all of the guilt, right? With all of the pressure for you to give offering. You got to give your first fruits to God. You got to give your best to God. You got to trust in him, right? I heard of this one church, the pastor sent the offering basket around three times because he said, I know you guys didn't give God your best. How oppressive, right? How oppressive. But I thought that was really catchy, like the Sunday morning stick up, right? I thought that was cool. Uh, not, not cool, but clever, clever. Well, this is what the teachers in Ephesus were doing, the false teachers. They were using godliness and the church. They were peddling the word of God for personal financial gain. And Paul said that this is wrong, that that motive, that that action was entirely against true godliness. So if it wasn't just for their false teaching, if it wasn't for their false fruit of dividing the church, this last one was damning that their false motives expose them as false teachers. And rather than shrinking away from the topic of money and possessions, because that would have been the easy move. He's like, oh, those guys are abusing money. That's not the way to do it. Let's talk about something else. Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't shrink from talking about this difficult, touchy subject. Rather, Paul uses this as an opportunity to teach on true godliness and how the Christian should view money and possessions. And in Paul's presentation in chapter 6, he gives us two principles for how the Christian is to view money and material possessions. The first is this. We're to approach it with contentment. Okay, It's with contentment. Godliness in contentment. The second is generosity. Okay, The Christian life, when it comes to money and possessions and earthly things, we are to handle them. Our posture must be with contentment and generosity. Today, we're going to look at contentment. And next week, as we finish the series, we're going to look at generosity. Now, the title of today's sermon is super original. It's called Contentment, right, in the bulletin. But in classic fashion, there are three points. The first thing we're going to look at is the benefit of contentment, okay? The benefit of contentment. Second, the danger of discontentment. And thirdly, the secret to contentment, okay? So the benefit of contentment, the danger of discontentment, and finally, the secret to contentment. Now, the Apostle Paul, this guy was a great wordsmith, great wordsmith. And in verses five to six, we actually see him at his best. And he regarded the false teachers as people who had imagined godliness as a means of gain. Okay, that's the phrase, imagining godliness as a means of gain. Then in the very next verse, verse 6, he flips those words around and he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And I love that. He's telling us that godliness isn't the means to gain, okay? That, that going to church, that worshiping God, that following Jesus isn't the path to getting rich and getting everything you want, that God isn't a bridge for you to achieve all your goals, all your wishes, and all your desires. No. 
Godliness is the gain. Does that make sense? God isn't the bridge to your gain. God is the gain. He is your reward. To be content in Christ, that is our treasure. God isn't a means to an end. God is the end. God is our ultimate glory. He is our ultimate treasure. He is to be our ultimate joy. Now, if you are a Christian and if you spend time in the church, you say amen to that. But here is the great tragedy. You and I in our hearts, we don't believe this. We understand it. We know that that's the way it should be. We know that that's how the Bible teaches us to think. But if we are honest with ourselves, we want God and more. Don't you? Yes, God is my treasure, but I still need that job. Yes, God is my reward, but you know what? I need a spouse. I am burning, right? Yes, God is first in my life, but I need that house for the school district for my kids. I need those possessions. I need those things, whatever it might be. We want God and more, don't we? That's what we come with. And here's, here's the great reveal. This shows why we don't have God as our ultimate reward, because the moment God doesn't give us that more thing, whatever it is in your heart, whatever it is in your mind, whatever it is that thing that you're craving and desiring, if God doesn't give that to you, how do you respond? Most of your responses are with discontentment, disillusionment, depression, and melancholy. You're like, God, why have you abandoned me? I didn't get into the grad program I wanted. God, why have you forsaken our family? We're not as successful as we want to be. We're not as healthy as we want to be. God, where are you? God, you're not even there. You don't even care. And I believe that God is just telling us today, and I've been praying this for myself and for you, that today, if we could just pause, and if we could take a step out of our finite, limited perspectives, if we could remember who God really is in all of his greatness and all of his glory, if we could just get a glimpse of that today, then perhaps we would realize that he really has given us his best, that he really is our reward, that God has not been holding out on you because he didn't give you that relationship or that job or that bonus or that possession. God has given you his best. How can I look at you and tell you that and promise you that and declare that? Because he has given you his son. God has given you himself. And if he is the infinite God, if he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, if he is the matchless, almighty, alpha and omega, when he gives you himself, he's giving you the best gift he could possibly give. So this is the formula that Paul offers you and I today. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Godliness plus contentment, that equals great gain. Let me break that down. What is godliness and what is contentment? Godliness, this one's simple. It's simply to know God and become like him. Okay, how do you become godly? Read your Bible and don't just imagine who God is according to your, your thoughts. You say, no, God, tell me who you are, show me who you are, and then follow him, obey him, right? Trust in him, abide in him. 
That's godliness. The more you can do that, the more you'll grow in godliness. Second, what is contentment? And the word Paul uses here, it was a popular Greek word that the philosophers used to describe self-sufficiency, right? Resolve and strength and discipline. And for the truly content person, for the truly content and knowledgeable philosopher, they were just unmoved regardless of the circumstances, regardless of anything. That's what it meant to be a stoic philosopher. That's what it meant to have true knowledge and true wisdom and true discipline, right? To be unmoved by any of the earthly circumstances. But friends, I want to tell you, this is not Christian contentment, okay? It is not Christian contentment. Now, it is true that Christian contentment does not depend on external things or circumstances. But here's the definition of genuine Christian contentment. It's not found in self-sufficiency. Okay? It's found in Christ's sufficiency. Okay? It's not found in you being mature, you being disciplined, right? you being knowledgeable and strong. No, it's found in you realizing the sufficiency of Christ the work of Christ, the strength of Christ, to realize that Jesus himself is enough for us. I'm going to expand on this in our last point. But first, I want us to just remember and consider Paul's formula. Godliness plus contentment is great gain. So why is this great gain? Paul then in verse seven gives us a very practical and sobering reason. Let's get back into our Bibles. In verse seven, this is what he says. Okay, why is this gain? For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. We cannot take anything out of it. Okay. He's talking about our, our birth and our death. And Paul's not trying to be morbid here, and he's not trying to scare us into the will of God. He's not trying to threaten us with death to like, make us live right. Because I, I know we've all heard that like, evangelism line. like You go up to a stranger and says, what would happen to you if you died today? And you're like, oh, I don't know. And then you kind of threaten them with hell and maybe they'll like become, become a Christian. That's not Paul's MO here, right? He's just speaking the truth to us. He's reminding us of the reality of death and to live our lives according to it. Brothers and sisters, will any of us in this room escape death? Will any of our loved ones escape death? The answer is no. We will all suffer a physical earthly death. But what Paul is doing, he's connecting us to this truth that has been spoken since the very beginning of humanity. Okay? In Genesis chapter three, after the fall, do you remember God's words to Adam? Right? God's words to Adam and his truth to Eve. In Genesis chapter three, verse 19, he tells Adam, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Recall how Adam was created. God took dirt. He took dirt and he formed it into the shape of a man and then he breathed life into him. And the moment Adam fell and sinned and death entered into the world, he looks at Adam and he says, you were formed from dust and to dust you shall return. That's the truth about all of us. Job, one of the richest men in the Old Testament. Okay? Job is famous or infamous being a man who suffered, right? Job lost everything that he had in a whirlwind of, 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 of calamity. He lost all of his possessions, his servants, his own children, and his health. And do you know what he did after losing all of this? 
The Bible tells us that Job fell down. And not out of loathing of God and loathing of self, he fell down and he worshiped and he declared, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you hear that truth? God speaks it to Adam. Job declares this after losing everything. Paul writes this to Timothy, and God is saying that to us, reminding us we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it. John Stott was reflecting on this truth, and this is what he wrote, and it's going to go up on the screen. In respect to our earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. So our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Have you thought about life and death in that manner? Your life is in between. It is bookmarked by two moments of nakedness. You enter with nothing. You exit with nothing. Okay. Man, that's sobering, right? That's sad. Pastor Michael, why are you preaching such mean stuff? Right? Such a downer. This is where contentment helps. The benefit of t- contentment is that it properly aligns our hearts. And it properly aligns our lives with the reality of life and death, okay? We cannot take all all of our stuff with us when we die. You cannot take your wealth. You cannot take your accomplishments, your GPA, the number of friends you have on Facebook, how many raises and promotions you've gotten at uh, at your company. None of those accolades will come with you once you die. When we leave this earth, they all remain at best you left your family a great inheritance. At best, you left your spouse a great life insurance policy. But even that, right? your spouse would be thankful for it. Even that, you don't take that into eternity. You leave that here. You leave that here. But God and what he offers us in Christ, that lasts for eternity. That really, really does. The early church father, Tertullian, he once put it like this. Nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Think about that. Nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. His grace, his favor, his adoption, his presence, his forgiveness, none of that can be bought with your money with your accomplishments, with your wealth, with your success, we don't have the right currency to receive the blessings and the favor of God. How do you and I receive the things of God, the things that last not for just this world and this lifetime, but through all eternity? The gospel tells us it is by grace through faith in Christ. You and I can receive the things of God only by the hand of God. But that is such a treasure for us. If we know this and we rest in this truth that we receive the things of God from the hand of God, then we can be content, not just in this life, but in the next. Now, this is the call that Paul has issued for us to live in the reality that godliness with contentment is great gain. It is real profit. It is real treasure. 
But this is easier said than done. If we're honest with ourselves, many of us struggle with discontent, don't you? What is it right now that is stressing you out the most? Right? What is burdening you? Right? What is keeping you up late at night? And for many of us, it's money. Right? Some of the college students and the grads, you don't know how you're going to pay for your next semester. How are you going to cover your next month's rent? For families, you're wondering, how am I going to keep this business going? I'm underwater with my house or whatever it might be. Credit card debt for our singles just through our eyelids, right? We worry and we stress and we are burdened by money. Here's the interesting thing. You and I, we buy into the lie though that if we could just make a little bit more money, your problems would go away. Don't you think that? If I could just get a little, like confess every time the lotto, right? 250 million, you're like, man, if I just won that, I'd be set. I would be so, so happy. If we could just get a little bit more money, if our businesses could be a little bit more successful, our problems would go away. We'd have less stress. We could take better care of our parents, of our families, of our children. We could buy the home that we want. We would be happier if we just had a little bit more money. But what does the word of God tell us? It's actually the opposite. You and I, our love for money is the root of all kinds of evils. Money is not the solution. Our ambition, our pursuit, our obsession with it, that's actually the source of so many of our problems. In verse eight, now we're moving into the danger of discontentment. In verse eight, Paul tells us, when it comes to earthly things, right? The divine eternal things, those come directly from the hand of God and the grace of God in Christ. But when it comes to earthly things and earthly contentment, do you know what you need? He says, all you need is food and clothing to be content. And the Greek word for clothing, it's actually, uh, it also means covering, which points us to shelter. And so in other words, Paul is simply saying, you only need three things to be content in this life. Food, clothing, and shelter. Aren't those your basics for survival? And I was like, yeah, I mean, there's a truth to that. He's like, yeah, but I still need my like, iPhone, right? And my car and my X, Y, and Z. But that's what Paul's saying. Just for bare bone contentment, those are the things you need. Now, I don't know everyone's exact circumstance here today, but I believe that most of us have those things in check. You have those for yourself, your family. Doesn't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from. Most of us are the kind of people who are not wondering, where am I going to get clothes to cover myself this winter? We're just asking, what coat do I want to wear today that's going to look cute? Right? What jacket is going to look best with this outfit? Right? And even though we know, even though we know, yeah, it's true, all we need is food, clothing, and shelter, we still struggle with discontentment. Why? Because it's a matter of the heart. Discontentment, see, you and I, we think we're discontent because we're in bad circumstances. But the Bible says, no, you are discontent because your heart is ill. And your heart is ill with greed. Your heart is ill with pride. Your heart is ill with covetousness. I love what Phil Riken writes about discontentment. This is what he says. He says, discontentment is life's burglar. It robs every other experience of its God-given joy. Someone 
with discont- who is discontent is always operating at a loss. And this is so true. This is so true. If your heart is struggling with greed and covetousness, the moment you get something and someone one-ups you, what do you want? Theirs, right? So many of us, we, 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 we want and we strive and we pursue things. The moment you get it, you get bored of it. After three months, whether it's a next game or electronic toy or some kind of purchase, it just doesn't give you that kind of satisfaction and contentment that you expected it to. Why? Because your problem isn't circumstance or material issues. It's the heart. It's your greed. Look again at what Paul says in verses 9 and 10. This is the danger of discontentment. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, to a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I just want to simply say money itself, money itself is neutral, right? You can use money for good or you can use money for evil. And so Paul is simply saying money is neutral, but what is not is your heart when your heart is in love with money, when your heart is craving money, when your heart is afflicted with greed, then it becomes the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving, this greed, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Church, what Paul is saying here is that discontentment driven by greed is a truly dangerous thing. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The desire to be rich, do you know what happens? When you become obsessed and consumed with this desire to be rich and wealthy and powerful and successful, you get tempted to sin. You get tempted to lie. You get tempted to cheat. You get tempted to trample on your coworkers so that you can level up or trample and trash your competition so your company will do better. We get tempted to steal. And we profane ourselves in order to get what we want. The wealth, the success, the riches. The world is full of all kinds of evil because of greed, is it not? Ponzi schemes on Wall Street, right? Stealing people's hopes and retirements, their savings, right? We see that kind of corporate corruption. We see all throughout developing nations, unjust labor practices, practical slavery. Why? To lower the bottom line, to manufacture the cheapest number and to get ahead. We see an entire gambling industry that preys on greed and addiction. And the list goes on and on and on. Why? Because of greed and covetousness. Now, there may be many of you here today, and I hope most of you here today just feel like, that's not me. I don't do any of those things. Pastor Mike, I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't trample my coworkers to make my way to the top. I'm a good neighbor, I'm a good worker, and I'm not ripping people off, and so um, not really connecting. Can I ask one more question? In your pursuit of wealth and success, in your pursuit for the students to get the highest GPA, to, to polish your resume and do your best to get into that next grad program or whatever it might be, do you overwork to the neglect of God? Do you overwork to 
to the neglect of yourself, your emotional, your physical, your spiritual health? Do you overwork to the neglect of your family, your spouse, your children, and ask yourself, why? And you say, oh, it's for my family. You say, oh, it's because my, my parents need it, or my children need it, or my spouse needs it, or this is good for my future. But I believe that for many of us, at the core, it's your ambition. It's your greed. And even though it's not a blatant sin, like you are cheating and trampling and lying and stealing, your tendency to overwork, it ruins and corrupts your most cherished relationships. Let me share with you a personal example. Uh, the last time I cried was uh, during an argument with my father in high school. Okay, I'm a stone heart. I don't say that as like a machismo pride thing. I like, I wanna cry, guys. I genuinely do. Uh, and every time I get close, right, I, I, it's like a sneeze. I'm like, oh, here it comes. And then it goes away. And I'm like, gosh, the best I get is like watery eyes. Okay. But the last time I truly cried was uh, during an argument with my father in high school. Now, my father has been the owner of a, a dry cleaners my entire life. He started his day at 5 a.m. and he drove an hour from the west side of Atlanta to the east side of Atlanta. And, um, and he would return home. Long after my brother and I had already eaten dinner and the sun has set, I often remember my, my mother waiting on him, waiting on him and then reheating his food and then eating late dinners alongside him. Right? He loved us. He really did. And he provided everything we ever needed and more. I never had to worry about food, clothing, and shelter. Okay? I went to a private school. Guys, I had a go-kart. I had everything a kid could possibly want. I was a spoiled, rotten little brat. But there was a season in my life as a teenager when I really felt his absence. I felt his absence. And one night during a heated argument with my father, I looked him in the eye and I cried out, Dad, I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. I want you. I want my father. And he looked at my tear-soaked eyes. And he didn't know what to say. And he looked down. And he silently walked out the room. But he got the message. And to his credit, he didn't make me a single promise. You know that? He wasn't like, oh, you know, Mike, let's talk about, not Pastor Mike. Mike, let's talk about what you said the other night. He didn't make me any promises. But you know what he did? He just showed up. He showed up when I had soccer games. He made time for my lame band performances, right? What is worse than like a high school band performance? He's there. He made time to play golf with me. And now here I am 20 years later, living on the other side of the country. I see him once or twice a year, but my heart is filled with priceless memories of a father who not only worked hard to provide for his family, but he worked hard to be present for his family. And I think we need to remember that. You see, Jesus asks us, what profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his very soul? The question for you today is, what are you forfeiting in trying to gain the world? 
What are you giving up in trying to get that perfect GPA? What are you giving up and forsaking and trying to get that perfect job or that perfect house or run that perfect company? Are you forsaking your relationship with the Lord? Are you forsaking your own health? Or even worse, are you forsaking your own family? I really appreciate this great quote I heard from a man named Herbert Schlossberg. And this is going to go up on the screen as well. This is what he wrote. All true needs, such as food, drink, and companionship, the things that God wired us to truly need in our souls and in our bodies, the things that you have to have, those are satiable. Those can be satisfied. But illegitimate wants, pride, envy, and greed, those things are insatiable. By their nature, they cannot be satisfied. Enough is never enough. And isn't that true for you? When have you experienced money being enough? I'm sure the college students are like, man, if I ever made $40,000 a year, that would be awesome. And all the parents are like, that's not enough. That's not enough. And all the single adults are like, man, if I made $70,000, $80,000 a year, that would be amazing. And all the families in certain neighborhoods, they said, that's not enough. That's it? Single family income? That's not enough. But God has wired you and I to be able to be content, to be able to be, to, to be able to be satisfied and satiated by our true needs. You eat and you get full and you say, I have had enough. I needed companionship. I needed my father. And so when my father showed up, that was enough. I wasn't like, oh God, I, father, I need more and I need more. No, when he was there, I was satisfied. But friend, if your heart and your soul is plagued and infected with greed and envy and covetousness, nothing will ever be enough. The wisest and richest man who ever walked this earth beside Jesus Christ, he testifies to this. Solomon, he echoes this truth in Ecclesiastes 5. And I love his quote and his wisdom. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Solomon's writing as the richest king to ever rule over Israel. He's literally at the mountaintop. And he says, you know what, guys? It's not enough. It doesn't satisfy. Don't pursue it. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Everything under the sun is meaningless. Would we consider that today? So we've looked at the benefit of contentment, the fact that it comes from God, from the hand of God, and it lasts for eternity. We're looking at the, and we've looked at the danger of discontentment, how it corrupts our hearts, it corrupts our relationships with God and our family, and how we will never be satisfied. Now here's the last question. How do we get then contentment? What is the secret to contentment? How do we become the kind of people who can work hard but be free of greed and selfish ambition? How can you and I become the kind of people who can endure through failure, hardship, and even bankruptcy and loss and not be crushed, not be destroyed, and not lose our faith in God? Okay, that's the question. Can you lose everything and not lose your faith in God as Job did? 
How can we become those kinds of people? The answer is found in Christ in the gospel. You see, Paul, he writes of this in Philippians 4. And in Philippians 4, there is the famous quote, one of probably the most famous verses in all of Scripture, where he says, I can do all things through, Christ, through him, Christ, who gives me strength, right? That's everybody's yearbook quote, right? You're graduating 12th grade, you're like, here we go, life is starting, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. All, all my friends use that quote, okay? That's like such a game time, such a motivational quote, right? It makes us feel like we can conquer the world, accomplish our goals, here we go. But you know what Paul is writing about? Not goal setting, not winning, not accomplishing. He's writing about persevering. You see, Paul, when he's writing Philippians, he's in jail. He's in prison. He's been persecuted. He's been falsely accused. He's been isolated. And this is what he is writing to the Philippian church. Verse 11, let's start there. He says this. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. A better translation is actually, I can endure all things through Christ, through him who strengthens me. Church, this is the secret of true contentment. For you and I to receive our strength from Christ alone. For us to receive and find our rest, our treasure, our identity in Jesus alone. For us to do our work out of the knowledge that Jesus has finished the work on the cross on, on our behalf to draw our strength from the promise that Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. And that is such a precious promise to us. See, Paul knew when he was in plenty and in wanting, Jesus was always with him. When he was in abundance and when he was in poverty, that Jesus would always be his fortress, that he would always be his rock and his, his redeemer, that Christ would be his one constant. You see, Paul understood this. And because of Christ's strength for him and Christ's strength in him, he was able to be content in every situation. The strength of Christ is the secret to contentment. Brothers and sisters, a true Christian doesn't say this. I don't need anything in this world to make me content. Okay. That is not the gospel language we are to use. It sounds strong. It sounds mature. Oh, I don't need this world. I don't need anything to be content. You know what the true Christian says? A true Christian says, all I need is Christ in this world and I shall be content. What are your wants? What are your demands of God? Would you only demand that he receive you and accept you on behalf of the righteousness and acceptance and victory that Jesus Christ won on the cross for you? Today, would Jesus be enough? Today, would Jesus be your strength? I know that there are many of you here today who are struggling with discontentment. It could be sourced from a variety of issues. It could be situational. It could be in your heart and personal. 
the religious side of us is going to say, hey, you know what? Just those don't matter anymore. I just only God in his kingdom. I'm going to suppress them. I'm going to ignore them. I'm going to just act like they don't matter. But I believe that God is telling us today, do not hide. Do not suppress. Do not be ashamed of those areas of discontent that you have. Don't be ashamed of your depression. Don't be ashamed of your anxiety and your stress. Instead, take those to Jesus and say, God, give me your strength. I can't carry these alone. I can't win alone. I can't accomplish this alone. I can't protect and provide for my family alone. I can't accomplish my, my work alone, my studies alone. Jesus, I need your strength. I need your help. I need your grace. And I believe that as God meets you here today, and as God supplies for you his strength in Jesus Christ, that he will give you peace and contentment. That's my prayer for you. Can we make that our prayer before the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this sober word that was given to us today. That naked we have entered into this world, and naked shall we depart. That we are but dust, but we thank you for your love and for your grace and the work of the cross that sees us as dust and still loves us. That Jesus, you see who we truly are in all of our sin, in all of our waywardness, and you gladly give your life for us. We are amazed at such a scandalous grace. Lord, today would you help us to believe. Help us to believe right now that you are with us and that you will never forsake us. That even in our most difficult trials and sorrows and pains, help us to remember that you are not a God who abandons. That you are a God who sees all of our tears. And you are a God who provides for us your strength and your grace. So Lord, I pray right now that you would minister to any heart that is discontent and full of sorrow. Give them your peace, God. Give them your presence. In Jesus' name I pray.